So interestingly, in this morning's passage, uh, we're in 1 Peter, as Jason mentioned, and Peter is looking at very similar issues of authority and government. So it's very, very kind of David Cameron to have booked the referendum for exactly the right week because it fits nicely into the series that we're in. So if you're new this morning, we're in a series called Perspective, Live for the Day. And in the book of 1 Peter, Peter knows that if we know what we're living for, then we can live each day with real meaning and focus and clarity. Peter knows what I think all of us know, that our daily living, of course, is shaped by the perspective that we have. And I guess when it comes to matters of government and politics and civic authority and so on, all of us will come to the table, won't we, with a certain perspective. Even as the video was being shown or I was praying, perhaps all of us have got a certain perspective, I think, that shapes how we respond to government, politics, elections, voting, human authority, and so on. And I reckon there are, broadly speaking, there are probably three very, very general perspectives that all of us might have, or probably fit into at different times in our lives, even during a week, that might shape how we respond to human authority. These are very broad brushstrokes, but I think all of us might at some point fit into these three types of perspectives. Number one, I suppose, might be sometimes a certain degree of apathy. So I'm told that I think 30% of people won't vote in the EU referendum this week. And I guess with that kind of apathetic approach, this is not a criticism, I think all of us can feel that at times. You can kind of feel, well, what's the point to an extent? We can always often feel, well, does my vote really count? Is it really going to affect the decision makers in London and Brussels if I cast one vote? And is their decision really going to affect my day-to-day life here in Kingston? I've certainly experienced on occasions a sense of apathy sometimes when it comes to engaging with big human authority structures. Or maybe a different perspective might be a more enthusiastic one, a one maybe that is more positive with regards to human authority and government and so on. I was lucky enough this week to attend an event at House of Lords at Westminster this week, and there were some 750 church leaders and community leaders and politicians who gathered together. And as we were taken out of Westminster Hall towards one of these lovely old committee rooms to have a seminar in, I was walking down the corridors of power, and I'm glimpsing a painting here of a former leader and a a statue there and plaques and uh, memorials to certain laws and so on that have been passed, and seeing MPs walk down with their staff hurrying off to meeting. And I was just kind of struck, really, with a sense of... Uh, positivity, I suppose, about the system that we do have. That, of course, it's not perfect. We have a pretty good system where equality and democracy and freedom of speech are at the centre of it. And maybe thirdly, sometimes we can have a perspective that is neither apathetic nor maybe particularly positive, but maybe is more negative towards human authority structures. Actually, we wouldn't consider them positive at all. We would consider them sometimes negative things, negative forces. So I'm, I sit on a little residence committee on the Cambridge Road estate where my wife and I live. And there are some just wonderful people who sit on that committee, as you can imagine. And for many of them, authority structures are less a positive force for equality and justice. And actually, authority structures are a negative thing for inequality and injustice. Some people will feel, actually, I've been let down or mistreated by authority. And so for me, authority figures are less about being positive or even not mattering at all than it actually can be a negative thing. I think we can all, can't we, have occasionally a negative viewpoint over authority structures and government and so on. The latest corruption scandal comes through, like, here we go again. Or a decision gets made that negatively impacts us in our day-to-day life. So I reckon you can probably fit into all of those three at some point in your life, maybe even just during a week like this. You might feel apathetic, positive, and negative, all in the same week, about something like the EU referendum. Well, Peter wants to speak straight into these perspectives in this passage this morning. 
And he wants to say this, whether authority is just or unjust, engage and do good. That's the primary point that he wants to make. He's going to reference governments and bosses. He's going to reference employees and citizens. He's going to quote Old Testament scripture. All of that is to help us understand that whether authority is just or unjust, he's urging Christians and the church to engage and do good. So, with that in mind, we're going to read chapter 2, verses 13 through to 25. Here we go. Peter says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherds and overseer of your souls. So what's Peter saying? Whether authority is just or unjust, engage and do good. I know it might sound a trite sentence, but I think we love it when people engage and do good. Something stirs in our hearts, in our souls. Just the other day, I was watching one of those uh, award ceremonies. I think they're almost, almost always on ITV. You know the ones where they find people in the community, normal, everyday people in society across the nation who are kind of engaged in their community and are doing fairly extraordinary good. And they find different people, and then they create a nice emotional two-minute montage about them, and at the end, you feel warm inside and you applaud them for what they're doing. And I was watching one of these programs, kind of with that slightly cynical attitude inside me, I have to confess. And then one of the um, people nominated, it, it turned to his uh, kind of piece, his nomination, and a montage was put together to nominate a man called Bob. And Bob was, uh, turned out to be a man who'd been part of an athletic club for 52 years. And as this piece went on, it turned out that Bob had been going to his athletic club week in, week out for 52 years. And he was there every single week, come rain or come shine. He was putting the hurdles out for the track. He was uh, sorting out the sand in the long jump pit. He was making the food for people afterwards. He was coaching some of the under-11s and under-9s for 52 years. Amazing. And they had interviews with people who were saying, I, I remember Bob when I was a child, he took me to the long jump, and I'm now doing this because of that, and he showed me this, and he was clearly a, kind of a father, grandfather figure as well. And by the end of this montage, all my cynicism has been put to one side, and I'm like, vote for Bob, this guy's amazing. Tears, almost, running down my cheek. My point is, we do love it. Something happens in our heart when we see people engaging and doing good. And Peter, I think, is pointing us towards something similar. So point number one, what does it mean to be under just authority? 
and engage and do good under just authority. I guess the thing that particularly struck me about being at the House of Lords this week was really the privilege that we have of living under a just authority. We really do have, I think, significant freedom to engage in the communities around us. Like, simply put, living under a just authority just makes it easier, doesn't it, to engage and do good. Now, our system isn't perfect. Of course it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Winston Churchill put it as succinctly as ever when he said, it might well be the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried. It's a pretty good system that we have to live under. And there we were this week at Westminster, the heart of the human authority structures across the whole nation in this wonderful Westminster Hall. And there we were, people discussing, people praying, people disagreeing, all able to happen in the heart of human government in this nation. And as I mentioned before, we, we left Westminster Hall and went to the seminar part of the morning, going through these kind of corridors of power and into this ancient old committee room with all of the wonderful paintings and plaques and memories of democracy and so on down the years. And I was in a seminar, people were engaging and discussing what it means to uh, engage with communities, I guess effectively do good for them. And it was really quite an inspiring place to be. Like there was a, a policewoman who stood up and just explained how enthusiastic she was to be able to partner with street pastors in Bedford. And so she was explaining how street pastors are brilliant to partner with because they support the police in caring for people who are out and about in the pubs and clubs of Bedford on a Friday, Saturday night. Really inspiring to hear from two MPs from different parties, both agreeing and, and encouraging churches and Christians to genuinely engage with and serve and bless civic and local authorities. Living under a just authority, as we do, just makes it easier to engage and do good. And Peter wants, I think, us to recognize that human authority structures are there because that's, how, that's, part, of how, that's part of God's plan for how humanity flourishes. Did you notice in verse 13 that he says, the emperor and governor are sent by God in order to punish evil and to endorse good. In other words, authority structures are there to uphold justice. God has put authority structures there, local and national, for our good, for human flourishing. So I would suggest it's appropriate, isn't it, that we should have a sense of gratitude, a sense of honor towards those that, that lead us, Peter himself says in verse 17 that we should honor the emperor, by which he means leadership. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, says that Christians should be praying for their leaders. I recently met with uh, James Berry, who you might know as the MP for most of this borough, and we had a really nice time together, and at the end I just said to him, how can we pray for you? And I'm really pleased to say that he'll join us for uh, one of our Sunday services in the autumn term, and we'll do an interview with him just like Jason and the Mecca did just now. And I'm sure at the end of that we'll say to him, how can we pray for you? So do you pray for our leaders who are in authority? Do you recognize that they're there because God put them there for your good? Are you grateful that we live in a part of the world at a time in history where equality and democracy and freedom of speech and justice are largely upheld? Where we can have things like referendums and our vote counts, it'll be a free and fair election and the will of the people will be done. It strikes me that politicians get a pretty hard time in today's society, to put it mildly. But we should be really grateful, not least for MPs like Joe Cox, who you may have seen died so tragically this week. A woman who's clearly done so much to allow us and many others to live under increasingly just authority around the world, not just in her constituency. I don't think in a week like this, in a passage like this, it's appropriate, I think, to honour her, 
I found it incredibly moving. I don't know whether you did, reading through her biography and the tributes that came into her, whether she was heading up um, major relief programs for Oxfam or Save the Children in war-torn parts of the world, or whether she's been serving for a year her constituency in Yorkshire. She seemed to be a woman determined to help people live under increasingly fair and just authority. And my observation is there are many, many, many councillors and MPs and leaders like her who really want to govern with just authority so that their communities flourish. And so as I mentioned last week, I'm excited to see what God's going to do amongst this church community, what doors he's going to open for us, how he's going to lead us and guide us to even more engage with and bless and reflect the goodness of God to our borough. So this week is a week where we concentrate on prayer as a church. So if you're in a life group, midweek life group, you'll see a prayer video comes out to a group this week. And one of the things we're going to pray into is just asking for God for a sense of his leading in how to engage, how to bless, how to reflect the goodness of God to those around us. So I'd encourage you to be there in your groups, to be praying, to be expecting God to speak to us, to guide us, to open doors for us, ones that we can push, that he'll open, and that we can go through. And then as always, at the end of our life group term, we're gathered together to worship and pray, 19th of July, and we'll do the same thing. We'll be pursuing and asking God to shape us and guide us and lead us in how best we can engage with and reflect the goodness of God to the community around us, 19th of July. But what about if rather than living under a just authority, as we generally do, what about if you're living under an unjust authority? What about if you're living under an unjust authority? Which reminds me a little bit of a story of mine, which is a little bit embarrassing for me to do, but I suppose it's never any bad thing. Um, I think I was 19 or 20 at the time, and on my summer holiday, I had got a job teaching English as a foreign language uh, in a school in England, but teaching English to Austrian students who'd come over to the country to learn English. And that I was in this boarding school, teaching English as a foreign language. And one evening, uh, we were all the teachers had a bit of a party. And we'd got this room sorted out, and there was a party to be happening later on that evening. And I was quite excited about this party, because there was a certain young lady that I quite wanted to impress. I thought, this is the perfect time to do it. A little bit of chat, be fine. Be putty in my hands. Well, this is a long time ago. I hasten to add. And uh, anyway, the evening was, was, uh, was going along quite nicely, and I was chatting away. And then at one moment, the door suddenly swung open. And this huge fellow was standing in the doorway, who turned out to be the caretaker of the school. And he announced in no uncertain terms that we should not be there. You should not be in this room. You cannot have this party. I'm the caretaker. I'm your authority. Get out now. It was a little bit of a tense moment. And in my potentially slightly naive youthful zeal, I thought it was down to me to confront what I saw as an un- unfair, unjust wielding of authority. Because I knew we were allowed to be in the party, we were allowed to be in the room. We'd asked permission, we were supposed to be there, the headmaster said that we could be there. As far as I was concerned, he was wielding his authority very, very unjustly. So I began to sort of explain to him that I think he was getting it wrong. And he, he sort of placed his hand on my shoulder as if to say, listen, sunshine, that's enough from you. And then in an incredibly immature, kind of foolish, zealous, youthful moment, I trying to impress the girl, probably, said, take your hands off me, or I shall be forced to take action. (laughs) At which moment, several things happened. (laughs) He laughed, the girl laughed, everyone laughed, and we'd all left within five minutes. I was fairly embarrassed, and... I was kind of quite frustrated that this unfair wielding of authority had stopped this party from happening. It really rankled with me that he'd used his authority, as far as I could see, in an unjust and unfair manner. My point is that all of us, I think, at some time can experience unfair 
unjust authority, far more probably profound than the little example that I've given you. We alluded before that Father's Day can be a difficult day for some. Maybe for you, when you associate fathers, you think of authority that was used not for justice, but for injustice. Just reflecting just this week on the Hillsborough disaster, you probably will know the basics of the, of the story and how recently it's been made clear that the police acted unjustly at the time and since. I was thinking, what must have that been like for those families for 25 years to live year after year after year knowing that the authority structure, the police, had not used their authority for justice but actually for injustice. Must, have been so, must be still so hard. Maybe you've got a boss or an employer perhaps who has acted with injustice towards you where they've used their authority not for justice but for injustice. Or other examples that are springing to mind as I'm talking. Well, I think I may not know exactly how you feel but I think Peter knows exactly how you feel. You see, the historical context in which Peter is writing is actually quite revealing. So he's writing to first-century Christians in modern-day Turkey, about AD 62, AD 63. And as they're reading this letter, he's telling them that they should honor the emperor, that they should seek to do good under his regime, that the emperor is there because of God. Did you catch that in the passage? Well, who's the emperor? The emperor is a guy called Nero, who you may or may not have heard of. Now, it seems that Peter wrote his letter just before Nero had begun his incredibly vicious persecution of Christians. But, nonetheless, Nero was already, by this stage, not the kind of leader that you would want. So by the time Peter has written, commentators suggest, Nero has already executed his wife, his mother, and seized most of the power from the Senate for himself. He is clearly not the kind of leader that you would want. He is well on the way to proving himself to be one of the most unpleasant dictators that would rival any around the world today. And Peter's saying, honor the emperor. That's hard if you're reading that in first century Turkey. And just in case Peter's readers think, well, it's the emperor, it's over in Rome, it's miles and miles away, it's not really kind of us day to day, Peter drills it down into a bit more locally and says, also, honor the governors. So that would be men like Pontius Pilate, responsible for Jesus' death. Men who governed certain provinces of the Roman Empire, who would often do so with incredible cruelty and injustice because they knew that a whiff of a rebellion in their province would mean they got their marching orders from Rome. And Paul says, Peter says, sorry, honour men like that. Then it gets still more personal. In case you're thinking, emperor, far away, governor, quite far away. Peter really kind of nails it, makes it much more personal, and says, what about if your boss is unjust? So in that culture, the slave-master relationship was not too far from being akin to a modern-day uh, boss-employee relationship, without, of course, employment laws and trade unions and so on. And in verse 18, Peter says, you may get a boss who is good and gentle, or you may get one who is unjust, even when you're doing good. So I guess it might be that you have a boss who's just a bit difficult, or somebody in authority over you more broadly who's just a bit difficult, who's just perhaps demanding, unfair, critical. And as I'm talking, the idea of continuing to engage and do good for him and her is frankly a little bit unpalatable. Let me tell you about a wonderful lady called Edith Cavell. She was a British nurse. She was born in 1865 
became a nurse. And at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, she uh, took her nursing profession to Brussels in Belgium. And she was just, she was a nurse on her own. But such was her passion for nursing and her ability to uh, think further forward. She basically revolutionized the nursing in Brussels. From being on her own, by 1912, she was providing nurses for three hospitals, 24 schools, and 13 kindergartens. And just to prove how well thought of she was, when the Queen of Belgium broke her arm in 1912, she specifically asked for one of Edith Cavell's nurses. 1914, Edith was back at home in rural Kent visiting her family, and the world changed because Germany invaded Belgium and World War I started, and Belgium became swiftly occupied by the enemy forces of Germany. And extraordinarily, Edith didn't do what her family expected her to do and remain in her idyllic Kent village with her family. She went straight back to Brussels as quickly as she could. Such was her commitment to nursing, she went back as quick as she could and ended up tending to the wounded of all the different countries, including German soldiers in 1914 and 1915. So it strikes me that she lived in Brussels all through this time. She lived in Brussels under a just authority and she engaged and did remarkable good. Then she lived in Brussels under an unjust authority, enemy-occupying force, and she continued to engage and do remarkable good. In fact, as the war went on, she began to help different soldiers escape from Belgium. So she would help Belgian and British and French soldiers escape from Belgium into neutral Netherlands. And eventually the Germans discovered what she was doing and they executed her as a spy. But not before she'd helped 200 soldiers escape from Belgium. Even under unjust authority, she continued to engage and do remarkable good. And Peter's saying, whether the authority is just or unjust, he is encouraging and exhorting the Christian church to engage and do good. At which point, personally, I feel like saying, Peter, I'm not sure how you do that. I don't feel like Edith Cavell, a heroine or a hero of such magnitude. I don't know how you do that. Peter's answer to the Christian, I think, is in the text. I think he's effectively saying to the Christian... You are ultimately neither under just or unjust authority. Ultimately, you're under the authority of God. And therefore, engage and do good. He's saying whether the human authority that you are experiencing is just or unjust, if you know you're under the authority of God, then, regardless of circumstances, you can engage and do good. So third point this morning, God's authority. Just come back to Edith Cavell for a moment. How, how was she able to continue engaging and doing such good when the justice that she was living under changed so dramatically. Well, partly, it was due to her allegiance to the medical profession. She was committed as a, as a nurse to bringing goodness to wherever she was. Do no evil and do no harm and do good and so on. If I've quoted the Hippocratic Oath even vaguely accurately, sorry if I haven't. Partly due to her patriotism, her allegiance to uh, her country and to her allies. But ultimately, I've discovered that Edith Cavell's, what motivated her really was the fact that she had a bigger perspective. She had a greater perspective. She said this, Standing as I do in view of God and eternity, I realize that patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone. You see, for Edith, ultimately, she wasn't under the authority of anyone, German, Belgian, or British. She knew she was under the authority 
of God. That's what caused her to engage as she did. Regardless of human authority, she knew she had the authority of God and she wanted to reflect the goodness of God. And that is what underpinned all that she did. And when you read Peter's passage, I think you can see that the same mindset that Edith Cavell had undergirds what Peter is writing and how he's communicating. You see, as much as he's encouraging us to honor human authority, really he wants to say to his readers, you've really been brought under the greatest authority of all. Of course, he's anxious that the church should honor the authorities as much as possible, not least because they're living in increasingly persecuted times. In fact, Peter would shortly lose his life two years later for his very Christian faith. But he wants to weave throughout the passage the reality that God's authority is paramount to the Christian. Look at some of the verses that come on the screen behind me that I think prove that point. Verse 13, for the Lord's sake be subject to every institution. Verse 15, it is the will of God that you should do good even when you're confronted with foolishness. Verse 17, honor the emperor, fear God. Verse 19, be mindful of God when you do good and suffer. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God when you do good and suffer for it. Can you see how his perspective of the authority of God undergirds and underlines all that he's saying? Our ultimate perspective, Peter's saying, comes from God's authority, from what God thinks of what we're doing, of what God thinks of our engagement and our goods. When you know this, Peter's saying, then you can live like people who are free. Did you see that in verse 16? Not free to do evil, as we just as what we want, but free to serve God, to reflect his goodness, to do as he would do, to reflect how he thinks about things. Which can feel the freedom of serving God, that can almost feel like a paradoxical thing. What does it mean to have freedom and yet be under authority and serve? The Bible's clear that is the, that's, always supposed, that's always been the right order of things for humanity to joyfully know the authority of God. How's that possible? How's that been made possible? See, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has accomplished through his death and his resurrection. And one of those accomplishments, one of those achievements, is that he has made it possible for us to come home to God, to return, as Peter says. I love the last verse that he kind of brings the passage to a culmination and a climax. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Guys, we were made, we were created to be in friendship with God, to know his love and to joyfully live under his authority for our souls, to use Peter's language, to be given to him. That's what we are made for. And of course, that intention by God was corrupted by our desire to live under our own authority. And the gospel is the invitation, Peter's saying, to return to him, to be forgiven and and welcomed home to the perfect authority, the perfect shepherd and overseer of our souls, God himself. And look at what it cost Jesus to bring us home. Look at what it cost him to return us to the overseer of our souls. Look at the injustice that Jesus received. He who lived a perfect life, who only ever spoke truth, who only ever acted with compassion and justice, was reviled, wasn't he, Peter says, made to suffer. 
The gospel, you can put it a different way, is this. Jesus has suffered unjust authority in order to bring us under the just authority of God. And look at how Jesus responded to the injustice that he received. You ever wondered how to respond to injustice? Peter gives us a clue how Jesus responded to injustice. He never spoke deceitfully, he said. He never lashed out in revenge. He never issued threats. Jesus never put a foot wrong despite the enormous injustice he was receiving. He continued to engage and do the ultimate good, returning humanity to the perfect overseer of our souls. And don't miss how Jesus was able to do that. Don't miss how he was able to do that. How was he able to engage and perform the ultimate good when he was the victim of such injustice? I think verse 23 gives us the clue. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you notice that? Jesus, who experienced intense injustice, who was reviled and mocked and scorned and falsely accused and spat at. He lived through that with such perspective, what Peter's saying. He lived with such perspective. He knew, he knew there would come a day when God would bring all injustice to a head. He knew there would come a day when to quote Samwise Ganji in Lord of the Rings, Jesus himself would return under the perfect authority of God and make all the sad things come untrue. Jesus lived with perspective. He lived, yes, for the day at hand, the injustice he was facing at hand, but he also lived with an eye, a perspective trained on the day ahead when he himself would return under the perfect authority of God and make all the sad things come untrue. Deal with injustice. Punish evil and restore this earth with the perfection and the beauty of heaven. He lived with that perspective. And look again at what Edith Cavell said. Standing as I do in view of God and eternity. You see where her perspective was trained? Her perspective was trained on the authority of God and its eternal nature. Jesus had his eye on the authority of God and the eternal endeavor that he was part of. As he received un indescribable injustice, he knew what I'm encouraging all of us to know, that injustice will be paid for. It was paid for at the cross and it will be finalized and paid for and the earth will be rid of it on that day when Jesus returns to finish what he started, the perfect restoration of this earth. Injustice does not go undealt with. He knew that. And he knew that he would return to restore this earth with the perfection of heaven. Edith Cavell knew that. I'm guessing, but with that quote in mind, she must have had that in mind when she went to her death for the good that she had engaged in. She had eternity in mind. She knew that she was going to a better place and she knew that one day God would return to make this place a perfect place with no injustice and the justice and goodness and joy and perfection of God would be the inheritance of all who believed in him forever. Perspective. It shapes how you live. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Does it inform how you live, how you pray, how you respond to circumstances? 
You see, when you see what Jesus went through, like just such injustice, and what he achieved, bringing us under the just authority of God, then I think you can live with such confidence, such humility, such poise, if you like, humility and confidence in tandem. When you know that to be a Christian is to have a long perspective, to have one eye trained, not just on the day at hand, but on the day ahead, the day when all the sad things become untrue, the day when perfection of heaven exists forever on this earth. When you have a perspective like that, then you can engage in the day-to-day, regardless of the justice that you live under, engaging and doing extraordinary good. I wonder if the band can join me. Ross and the, and the guys could join me and help us to respond as we reflect and as we sing. I really want to emphasize this point, if I haven't already, that whether the human authority that you receive or live under is just or unjust, you really can engage and do extraordinary good for the glory of the goodness of God this week. It might not be dramatic. It might not be Edith Cavell dramatic. It might be real simple this week. I'm not being trivial, just being real simple this week. Maybe you've got, you've got a boss, and she, she never makes the cup of tea at work. You always make the cup of tea for her. But if you're a Christian, you live under the ultimate authority of God. You're there to reflect his goodness. So make her a cup of tea again. <laughs> or it might be more significant than that, maybe. Maybe, you have, maybe you've been the victim, or you are the victim of unjust authority. Where authority was supposed to protect you or encourage you, or allow you to flourish, and it failed to do any of those things. If that's you, come to Jesus in these moments. He knows what that's like. He does. He knows what it is to live under intensely unjust authority. He will help you to forgive, or to endure, as Peter says, or even to get back on the horse and engage and do remarkable good. Maybe you're exploring the gospel this morning. Listen, we're all exploring the gospel. Maybe you're at the beginning of that journey of exploring the gospel, considering what it means for God to be, as it were, the overseer of your soul, the one who you can come home to and return to. I'm guessing you've got questions, and I'd love to talk those through with you, if that's you at all. Uh, Ross is going to lead us in a song called God of Justice. Ross is doing a great job in teaching us new songs. This is another one. I want you to use this song to respond. I've given you some applications for the week, if you like, in terms of the the stuff of the week. What about in this moment? Two things. If you're somebody who has lived under or is living under unjust authority, I want you to use this song to let the God of all justice bring healing to your heart and maybe even help you to forgive. I know the freedom that comes from that. You might go no further than that this morning. It might be a healing, a forgiving thing. But as we sing also about the God of justice, the God who is opening doors for us to engage with and bless a community in a borough and reflect his goodness and glory, why don't you ask him, what would you have me do this week? And it might be the small thing, the cup of tea. Who knows? It might be the big thing, the Edith Cavell thing to bring healing and freedom and justice 
Who knows this week? Let, use the song to let God speak to you. Either to heal and to forgive, or maybe even to inspire, to send you forward, to knock on doors and see which ones he opens. You'll be amazed at what he does. Let's stand and sing together. God of justice.